welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I appreciate all of you that are here listening and all of your support. Uh, I guess a couple items before we jump into our topic for today. Uh, let's just all celebrate the fact that this episode is up at 7 a.m. Mountain Time <laughs> uh, on Mondays. This is my intended time to have this posted every single week. And it actually rarely happens now. Most of the time, I think it's still up on Mondays. A couple times it's been pushed to Tuesdays. But that is like my biggest pet peeve for podcasts that I um, just listen to on a regular basis. Like I absolutely hate when people say like, oh, I'm so sorry there wasn't a podcast up. Like I got caught up and I got it up late and blah, blah, blah. And I'm guilty of kind of doing the same thing. But today it is up on time so we can just celebrate that second order of business is i've been thinking a lot maybe this is too soon to float this idea but i'm just going to basically i have morphed a lot of what this podcast is into a history podcast there are some that are not history um but the majority of this podcast is now history based and when I started the podcast, which is almost three years ago now, which is crazy, uh, when I started the podcast, it was not, it didn't follow a certain niche pretty much at all. I meant to do faith, politics, and history, and that was kind of broad enough to cover any topic. And the original intent of the podcast was kind of to do controversial topics and like go over both sides of the argument and decide what I thought about them. So anything in the politics realm or um, in the faith realm, like I would look up, you know, baptism and what, what my thoughts were on that and look at all sides of the issue and kind of decide. That became really hard because some of these issues are so complex. It takes more than like one episode to sum up how I'm feeling about it and one episode to <laughs> decide. So I ended up morphing it a lot into history and some some aspects of faith or some aspects of you know of politics but mostly history so all that to say i'm wondering if now that i am doing mostly history should i basically rebrand maybe phase out this like a millennial learns podcast and just create a new one from scratch because I think what happened when I didn't have any sort of niche is like I didn't grow a base audience as much because someone who found me based off of like a Catholic versus Protestant topic uh, episode then wouldn't really care to hear something about World War II or about, you know, my politics or something. So I never really got, you know, that niched down base. So I might leave a comment box to kind of start the discussion. If you are a, a regular listener of this podcast, let me know if you like all the kind of scattered episodes or like having the flexibility to do a bunch of different topics, or if you think I should niche down to basically like a U.S. history podcast, because I really like U.S. history. I do want to learn more about it. And I think if I just kind of start over and make a whole new podcast and kind of phase this one out, then the algorithm might be a little more friendly to me, <laughs> um, you know, as it grows. So 
If I end up making that switch, it would probably be at the new year, and I will let you all know in the podcast episode, so you can go hop over to the new one. But that is what I've been thinking about, and I think that's pretty much all for the housekeeping items. Oh, a personal update. I might go to seminary, which is seems kind of random, but I've been really thinking about going to seminary for like six months, and I went to go apply to a seminary, and it's like really intense. I kind of thought it would just be a really easy application process, but they want all your transcripts from previous colleges and like a pastoral reference and another reference and I have to write an essay about my relationship with Jesus and all of this stuff that I was not really expecting. So I think I'm still probably gonna apply and continue my application because I'm really interested in learning more from like one consolidated theological perspective and doctrine and kind of denomination. Um, but yeah, that's quite the interesting process. I, I for sure just thought that it would be like submitting a couple drop downs and, you know, going for it. Cause my, my undergraduate degrees have nothing to do with anything religion or theology based. Okay. I think that's actually it. Let's get into the episode. Today we were talking about the first ladies of the United States, what their roles were, because it's really evolved over time. Um, and the reason I wanted to look up their history and stuff is because I know that each first lady has a cause. And I feel like I think about if I was first lady, <laughs> what my cause would be kind of a lot. I don't really know what it is because it's not supposed to be polarizing in any way. But I was thinking about that today and I thought that's a good podcast topic to just research the role of the first lady, you know, historically what causes have been chosen and we can kind of deep dive that together. So that is all. Let's get right into the episode. Okay, so the history of the first lady really dates back to George Washington when he was elected as the first president of the U.S. There was some kind of debate about what to call Martha Washington, his wife. So the public was still really, you know, largely under British cultural norms and cultural influences. And so to show respect to Martha, many people would call her Lady Washington. Um, so, but there was kind of, you know, some debate because that kind of connotes the royal structure and the royal culture and it just has British vibes and <laughs> you know and they just revolted and rebelled against England so you know there was some like oh I don't want to be called late called lady first lady um, it's too much like what we just broke away from but that was kind of a, the loose the loose title uh, around this time, basically the spouse of the president was considered to be kind of the head hostess and was in charge of all the domestic duties that changes later, but we will get into that. Now, if there was no spouse, so for example, Thomas Jefferson was a widower by the time he took office and it ended up being in a few presidents were. So in that case, it would be kind of the closest female relative. So a lot of times a daughter or uh, a daughter-in-law or um, I have some examples here 
coming up. Let's see. Um, so James Madison was in office at the time that Jefferson was president. I believe he was Speaker of the House or I forgot to put Secretary of State, maybe. I forgot to write what his role was in Jefferson's administration. But in either case, Jefferson was a widower when he was elected. And so he didn't have a spouse to, you know, fill in this hostess role. And so James Madison's wife actually served in, as a fill-in hostess when Jefferson's daughter, daughter was unavailable. So, and actually she, uh, Dolly Madison, it said that she was really key in bringing a lot of different people together from different political ideologies. And Zachary Taylor at her funeral coined her the quote, first lady of our land. Because, you know, you would think as the spouse of the president, you might not have a lot of influence, but a lot of these articles that I read, or sorry, that I read, um, basically said how traditionally the first lady has a lot of influence more behind the scenes. So if things got heated in, you know, on the Senate floor or something, but the first lady, you know, in those times where things were maybe tense, the first lady could host something and throw this social event that could really keep the country's fabric and the country's leadership together by reaching out across party lines and ha hosting this thing to kind of build goodwill, especially when their primary job was the hostess. That played a huge role in keeping a lot of these leaders on good terms while they debated these big, big political moves and opinions. Um, the first lady also kind of serves as somewhat of a, you know, a close advisor to the president. A lot of times, obviously as a spouse, you're going to be hopefully close with them. And so a lot of times the first lady can serve as that advisor role in, in more of an unofficial capacity. Let's see. Um, so yeah, like I said, the, the first quote lady had a bad connotation for a long time. It was really into the 20th and 21st centuries that some people thought that lady, first lady, was not something that should be used. So there were terms thrown around like presidentress, which just sounds too, too much. Honestly, that sounds a little snobbier than first lady. And also Mrs. President were tried. But... Um, those kind of implied that you are the spouse of the president. Mrs. President implies that you are the president's wife or the president yourself. And so those terms did not apply to James Buchanan's first lady because James Buchanan's first lady was basically his niece. So you couldn't call her Mrs. President because it didn't apply. She was the niece. So um, this is the kind of when the term first lady stuck around this time because in Leslie's Illustrated newspaper, they used the term the first lady of the White House to describe Buchanan's niece. So it wasn't just the first lady. They specified it and to get around the problem of it being a niece and not a spouse. 
saying she is the first lady of the White House. And that role can be filled by kind of anyone that the president would like. It just happens that it is most of the time the spouse. I've never thought about it as anything different um, than the president's spouse, but I guess that does make sense that not every president would have been married at the time of their presidency. So overall, the history of the first lady role, uh, there's this article that says that Lisa Burns identifies four successive main themes for the first lady of the first ladyship. So it kind of goes in phases here. So from 1900 to 1929, it was seen as a public woman. That was the main role of being the first lady. From 1932 to 1961, you were first and foremost seen as a political celebrity. From 1964 to 1977, you were, the first lady was mostly seen as a political activist. And from 1980 to 2001, the first lady was mostly seen as a political interloper. So we'll go into more of those when we, um, I'll list out all the causes of the modern first ladies and we can kind of see where those themes start being just more of a celebrity than an activist, um, or sorry, public woman, political celebrity, political activist, and political interloper. Um, many times it's talked about that the first ladies are these fashion icons, especially, you know, the Kennedys, great example. Um, a lot of times they set fashion and trends and are really looked up to as a celebrity of sorts. Okay, let's talk about the physical, I guess, role and the logistics behind the role, like the staff and things like that. So the first lady is responsible for carrying out all social and ceremonial events of the White House. So if you think of like the Christmas decorations, the first lady really has the say in how the White House is being decorated for Christmas. And when we list out the staff, then you will see, you know, there's, a, there's like a chief florist. So they have a lot of social and ceremonial things that they are overseeing. Here are some of the first ladies and how they kind of advanced and solidified this role. Um, so it says, well, okay, first of all, because of their position and being close to the president, many people would start asking the first lady for, you know, help in lobbying the president for a certain cause. They were looking for her to champion some cause and to take it to the president and say like, hey, you should, you know, you should really pay attention to this cause. So that's kind of the origins of a first lady picking a cause that is more politically neutral, that they will dedicate their time in office, you know, not only to these welcome parties and dinners and things like that, but also they will champion a cause, usually that it's non-political or it can be bipartisan in some way, and they take up this cause during their time. So let's run through some of these. Uh, so Edith Roosevelt, well, 
is okay edith roosevelt was the first to have a federally hired social secretary so as people were like lobbying the first ladies more and more and they had more added onto their plate there was a realization that okay we might need just a small team around the first lady at first i was just a single secretary that would help manage their calendar the social events and things like that and it was again federally hired lou hoover had more secretaries and she hired them out of her personal money so she took on more and more as well so she had i think the federally hired secretary but then she added some more people onto her staff independently with her own money this says uh when edith wilson took control of her husband's schedule in 1919 after he had a debilitating stroke that was woodrow wilson one Republican senator labeled her the precedentress who had fulfilled the dream of the suffragettes by changing her title from first lady to acting first man. So in that case, her role became much more than the standard first lady. She really managed all of Woodrow Wilson's things and really be, almost became his like secretary and acted as him. So um, that was in 1919. Eleanor Roosevelt was the first to have both a personal secretary, a social secretary, and an administrative secretary. So again, she is adding more federally funded secretaries because there's just so many role, ways in which the role is expanding. They're, they're in charge of a lot more. Jackie Kennedy was the first first lady to have a press secretary. So now this is standard that first ladies have a press secretary, but that was not the norm for a pretty long time. And Jackie Kennedy was the first to make that change. Rosalind Carter had the first chief of staff to manage all the projects and initiatives that she oversaw. So again, they become much more involved in these big initiatives and these bigger projects and speaking engagements and you know they still have like the dinners and the ceremonial things that they need to attend and to host so there's just a lot more going on so she added a full chief of staff to manage her staff um, i mentioned that the first lady oftentimes serves as an advisor to the president and there's a first lady's collection at the smithsonian institute it was created in 1912 and it was opened in 1914. I want to go to this so badly. I don't, I think I've been to the Smithsonian one time and I went to like um, some airplane part, like section of it. I have a picture from when I'm young, but I was too young to remember pretty much anything other than little tiny parts of the museum but i really want to see this first ladies collection there's 26 dresses that were worn by different first ladies and then there's over 160 you know personal items little knickknacks and things of each first lady that you can go see so i just think that would be really a fascinating display i really want to go um, and then this says, since 1964, the incumbent and all living former first ladies are honorary members of the board of trustees of the National Cultural Center, the John F. K. Center for the Performing Arts. So 
any currently alive first lady is a member of that. Okay, I also wanted to make a list here of non-spouse first ladies because we've mentioned a few. Uh, Jefferson didn't have a wife and then uh, James Buchanan's niece took over, but there were a few more that were non-spouses. So, okay, Jefferson's daughter was a Martha Jefferson Randolph. That was his first first lady. Uh, Andrew Jackson's daughter-in-law, Sarah York, was one of his uh, first ladies. And then that ended up switching to his wife's niece, uh, Emily Donaldson. Taylor's daughter, Mary Elizabeth, wait, Taylor's daughter, Mary Elizabeth Bliss, was his. Benjamin Harrison's daughter, Mary Harrison McKee, was his. James Buchanan's niece. And then Cleveland's sister, Rose Cleveland, was his first lady. Okay, and then let's talk about the causes that they have chosen. This is kind of what, what made me want to research it in the first place. I think it's really fascinating what everyone picks. And it, it says just a lot about kind of their administration and their personality, I feel like. And really what's happening with the times. Because, yeah, it, it seems to, to go with the times and it's kind of an interesting cultural statement, I would say. Okay, Dolly Madison, which is James Madison's uh, wife, popularized the first ladyship by engaging in efforts to assist orphans and women she dr uh, by dressing in elegant fashions and attracting newspaper coverage and by risking her life to save iconic treasures during the War of 1812. Madison set the standard for the ladyship and her actions were the model for nearly every first lady until Eleanor Roosevelt in the 1930s. So this was kind of like, like I said, she was the standard. She didn't it wasn't the norm yet to pick a specific cause and go after her, but she kind of just did. She wanted to preserve the artifacts of 1812. She was a kind of cultural icon. She was seen as very elegant and she wanted to help orphans and women. Um, so she picked several causes and it just wasn't like an official, okay, this is my cause. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt, was she actually kind of chose a cause that was the first real first lady who chose one she chose women's rights civil rights and humanitarian efforts which is interesting because as it's evolved they have become i feel like less and less political whereas women's rights and civil rights are pretty much baseline political issues and so usually not one that a first lady would touch today uh, it said famously had a stronger role and was more involved in politics. So she also talked about like social wel welfare and social justice. Jackie Kennedy, uh, her cause was White House restoration and the arts. And that is uh, why John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts it all ties back together. They were very much pro the arts. Lady Bird Johnson chose environmental protection and beautification. Pat Nixon chose volunteerism. Betty Ford chose women's rights and substance abuse. 
Rosalind Carter uh, chose mental health. Nancy Reagan chose the Just Say No drug awareness campaign, which I did not know that that came from Nancy Reagan. That's really interesting because I feel like my whole life I learned just say no, just say no to drugs. And it probably, it started fading out, I think, phasing out by the time I was like of a, of that age and, and it switched to the, the D.A.R.E. program, like D.A.R.E. to say no to drugs and D.A.R.E. stood for something, drugs and I don't know what it stands for, but very interesting that she came up with Just Say No as her uh, thing. Barbara Bush chose childhood literacy. Hillary Clinton chose healthcare in the United States. Again, a little bit polarizing. Laura Bush chose children's literacy. Michelle Obama had two. She chose one for each term. The first one was Let's Move, which is was an attempt to reduce childhood obesity. And the second one was Let Girls Learn, which was increasing education for girls. Now, I have to say, I really liked Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. I thought it was really, really good. It's probably not something you can do today with some of the body positivity stuff going on, uh, but I thought it was actually a, a good one. I'm not like, a, I'm not a huge fan of the Obamas, um, but I like this. I like it. It was like, hey, let's eat a balanced thing. Let's eat an apple sometimes. Let's go running. Let's move. Nothing bad about that. Um, Melania Trump was Be Best, which was a cyberbullying awareness campaign. And Jill Biden, hers is called Joining Forces, and that is for military families. Also like that. Okay, and then just to reiterate here as we kind of close up, there has never been a need to know the, the male equivalent, basically, of the first lady. And it would be interesting because it is such a, it is still like a ceremonial kind of hostess role for a large part of it. And then, of course, the initiative um, is another huge chunk, but you do still do a lot of the um, hosting and ceremonial stuff, which, by the way, I, I must have skipped a line in my notes talking about their actual staff and I want to read it because it was very interesting about the florals and stuff. What the heck? Did I not copy that in? Hmm. Very, very interesting. Well, just know there's a chief officer of florals or something like that. Um, that is um, part of their staff. So, but anyway, there has never been a male role that has been needed for this because all the presidents have been men and they've had wives. But there have been like women, there have been women governors of states. And so the going term right now is first gentleman of that state. And, you know, the time I guess we came closest well, there's been, there's been two kind of close things that we can pretty much assume that the, the male spouse of a female president would be called the first gentleman of the U.S. 
The first one is when Hillary Clinton was running, there was a lot of speculation that if she won, what would Bill Clinton be called? And that gets a little confusing in and of itself because he was the president. So you could call him Mr. President or you could call him, you know, first gentleman of the United States. Right now, Flotis is first lady of the United States. Fagotis doesn't roll off the tongue as an acronym. So, yeah, that's a little bit... um, a little bit different but the other example is currently happening because Kamala Harris is the vice president of the US and her husband is commonly referred to as the second gentleman of the United States so it has not happened yet but the day that occurs where we have a woman president she more likely than not her husband will be called the first gentleman of the United States so it'll be interesting if that changes but lady and gentlemen seem to go together well and first gentleman kind of rolls off the tongue the acronym does not phagotis does not but first gentleman in general i think does so that'll be interesting to see what all happens there could be this next election who knows we don't know um all right well that is all for this week's episode i hope you enjoyed the history of the first ladies of the united states hope you learned something I know I did, and I will see you next week for another episode. Bye, everyone.